0: Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health podcast. I'm Josiah. And I'm Anjiska. We were missionaries for seven years. Until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I'm an agnostic and also very much not evangelical And we are deconstructing. And reconstructing. Together. together. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together. Domestic Abuse, I Am a Survivor. The Cult of ATI Part 1 and 2 and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. together. And as we continue to seek health and be honest about the fact that even though I was a teacher, professor, missionary, a lot of stuff that I received and was passing on was not healthy. It wasn't helpful, healthy to us personally, to our marriage. Um, there's a lot of things that led to us struggling emotionally physically and we just want to be honest about where there isn't health and where we're, we're looking towards health and on this journey i was listening to the um don't repeat this podcast and i heard brian and he very graciously agreed to join us on this podcast and i was just really impressed with uh the podcast that you did brian and i was wondering if you could introduce yourself to our listeners
1: Absolutely. So, uh, introducing myself is is always a bit fun. I identify as a gay, formerly evangelical, full-time youth pastor who is happily married to a woman. Um, And that doesn't fit anybody's boxes or expectations, including my own. (laughs) Um, but this is a lot of my story that people don't fit into the nice boxes that we mm-hmm. like to put them in. And, uh, and that sometimes we have to rethink those boxes and what they mean.
0: And what I heard you talking about a lot in the, the previous podcast was you were told something that, from evangelicalism, that here is how to be healthy. Here is how to be whole. Mm-hmm. Here is how to have a relationship with God. And it didn't work (laughs) and you're honest about that. And you are taking courageous steps to find what is healthy for you and to find what is healthy to share with other people, because we're at a stage of life where we are the ones sharing and teaching other people. And so that's why I want to have you on. And I'm very much up in the air about the LGBTQ question. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to, um, how to speak on it, and I don't know mm. what is true, and um, I feel as though I I need to deal with it at a certain point. Um, but I really want to. I don't want to do what typical evangelicals do, which is let's just get away from the people that this actually affects and read the Bible, and then we'll show mm. up with the answers. I would right. love to hear you as somebody who has lived this. I would love to just hear your sor- your story and. Um, hear how the messages that evangelicalism presents, how that has impacted you, and then we can go from there. So I really want to just give you a lot of time to just say, like, what was it like um, mm. growing up gay in evangelicalism? Yeah. Uh, um, so the first
1: thing I, I have to explain to people is that Um, I grew up in a family where Christianity was everything. Um, I grew up in the associated gospel denomination, um, went to a uh, Brethren in Christ school and a Pentecostal youth group. So even there within evangelicalism, those are three really different traditions. But my family was super involved in church. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday evenings. Remember when Sunday evenings church was a thing? Uh (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, Wednesday night, Awana, Christian Service Brigade, youth group, our whole family, everything revolved around our faith. Um, I went to a Christian school from grade four on and, and, largely loved and was very happy within that tradition. Um, grew up, uh, accepted Jesus when I was four years old at vacation Bible school, and it meant something to me. I, I mean, it, I was baptized at age 10 or 11, I think. Um, and growing up, all I ever wanted was to make my parents proud, and to make God happy. And, um, and I love church. I love the community that was there. I love the people that were in it. I love the structure that it gave to our life. Um, and the last thing that I want to be seen as is, is attacking the church because I am deeply in love with the church and continue to still serve in ministry um and have dedicated my whole life to this um but i reached that crisis point very early on in life and for me it it really did revolve around my sexuality now the church i grew up in we didn't talk about homosexuality very much but when we did we didn't use language like homosexual or gay um they used the word sodomite <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah So I realized that I was gay probably in grade five or grade six. Um, And there's that kind of slow dawning on things as puberty is kicking in and growing up, what you know about girls is that girls have cooties and you have to avoid them at all expenses. Um, And that's reinforced by a church culture where men and women are, are very much segregated at everything that you do and so when you start hitting puberty suddenly it's even more so like keep these things separated um and around this time most of the other guys I know started kind of having the shift from girls have cooties to girls may have cooties and I want to get me some of those cooties. And for me, I'd always kind of been more friends with girls than I was with guys anyway, so I I didn't have that that mindset on things. Um, But grade six was really the the defining year for me. In grade six, I was going to a very small private Christian school. And in my class, there were 13 girls and me and my best friend, Chris, (laughs) the only two guys. And so this was the year of low hanging fruit. If ever there was a time to you know, to have a girlfriend and all of those things, the the opportunities was there. And it was about halfway through grade six that I realized that there were the 15 of us in the class, 14 of us had a crush on my best friend, Chris. (laughs) 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 And I didn't know what to do with that. One of the hard things growing up in in the Christian world is you don't talk about things. And so I didn't even have a language to understand or express what I was feeling. All I had was the language that I heard around me. And because I was a, a guy who wasn't into sports and was pretty emotional and showed my emotions, I was the kid who cried, you know, a lot of these stereotypical things. The kids in my neighborhood very handily started giving me words like, Gay, fag, queer, you know, all of these things got thrown at me, Um, homo, but I lived in such a bubble that I didn't know what a gay was, the Flintstones will have a gay old time, and Mm -hmm. homo was a kind of milk we drank, so. (laughs) (laughs) um, But I remember getting the inkling of this word homosexual. And and slowly beginning to like what what does this mean and looking it up one day secretly in the dictionary at school in the library, and that sinking feeling of, of oh that's what I am, oh and, and in some ways it was a relief because finally it's like I have this word, and then at the same time there's this dread because what I know is this is like the worst thing that you can be growing up in a Christian family. This is, and, you know, like I said, in my church, when we talked about homosexuality, we talked about, you know, it was called sodomites and sodomy and we read King James version Bible. So, um, so my frame of reference as someone who is 12 years old is, looking at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I am the kind of person that God hates so much that he will nuke an entire city to get rid of it. And for a 12 year old, you know, 11 or 12 year old who just wants to make his parents happy and follow Jesus, like to carry that kind of weight is incredibly burdensome. Mm -hmm. Um, there, There is a dread and horror with this. The other thing is these stories that, you know, the thing about growing up gay is everyone assumes you're straight until you come out, Um, and you learn how people think about gay people by watching them, and they don't think that it's relevant to you, but Mm. how they talk when they think it's not relevant to you, you're hyper-focused on picking up. Um, one of the stories I tell is being maybe seven or eight and going to summer camp and we used to sing songs at summer camp um, just silly camp songs and one of them was uh, the song about uh, they say that in the army and all the verses were about different things that you know they say it's going to be great and it's really hard and you don't want any more of army life and it's a a lot of camp songs are really weird when you stop and think about them uh, in retrospect. But, you know, and there was a guy's verse and a girl's verse. And and uh, the, the guy's verse was, you know, they... Uh, They say that in the army, the guys are really fine. You ask for Michael Jackson and they give you Frankenstein. (laughs) Um, And we're singing this at seven, you know, completely. These lyrics sound really different now to us than they did in 1984. (laughs) Um, But I remember singing this. And my mom was driving us to Christian Service Brigade and swung around, almost swerving off of the road. She was so upset. And I remember the vein like sticking out on her forehead. And she's like, that's about homosexuality. You shouldn't be singing that as boys. That's disgusting. My mom has zero memory of this moment ever happening and is horrifically embarrassed every time I tell this story. My brothers, you know, oh well, went over their head. To me, I was like, whoa, whoa, something's, something." like it just landed in me and resonated me and haunted me for years. And that's just a minor thing. But when you have a thousand of these things accumulate over years, what you learn is a sense of dread and self-hatred so that by the time you realize you are gay, this is the worst thing in the world that you can be. Um, when, when my family would see gay people on TV, which was much rarer back then, they, they always reacted with disgust and horror. And so I internalized that. So when I came to understand who I was, it was literally the worst thing I could imagine being. Um, and so I went into this state when I realized that this was this way, if I have to make this go away. So when you grow up in the church, when something's bad's happening in your life, what do you do? You, you read your Bible and you pray. <laughs> and so every night I would go to sleep and my prayer every night was, dear Jesus, I will do anything, I will follow you, just please, please, please make this go away. And I, I prayed that with all sincerity and every cell of my body wanting it to go away and no matter how much I prayed it didn't and I didn't know what to do with that and it sent me into an early crisis of faith and my legalistic upbringing taught me that if you're praying and your prayers aren't answered, then you start bargaining with God. (laughs) So then it was like, dear God, I'll become a missionary in Africa if you please make this go away. I'll become a pastor if you please go. And so I worked harder to be the best Christian kid possible to make up for the fact that I knew that this, this shameful thing was inside of me. And I thought if I could be good enough, then God would make this go away. Um, and so that set me on the this path of, I was the kid who sang in the choir and volunteered after church in the church library, reshelving the books with the church librarians. And, you know, anytime there was the Christian things, I was a super stockader and won awards for memorizing the most Bible verses. And I was the kid that, other parents would say, you know, oh, look at him. He's setting a good example. And others would want to beat up after church. <laughs> um, and there was so much pressure in that. And you can only maintain that pressure for so long. As I hit about grade eight, I came to this crisis point of God of going, okay, I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing everything I can and nothing is changing. This is getting worse what do I do? Um, And this is where a little bit of theology becomes a really dangerous thing. So I started reading some introductions to Calvinism and grabbed on to double predestination and went, so the reason that I'm, and I I read Romans chapter one, um, which said, which I interpreted to say is I'm gay because, you know, I am predestined to wrath and being gay is a sign of God's wrath and judgment on me. And I decided God's not changing this. I can't do anything about it. I'm this way because God hates me and there's nothing I can do about it. Wow. And my response in grade eight was like, well, F you God, <laughs> like, I can't do anything about it. Um, so you hate me, so I hate you too, whatever. Um, but when your dad is the elder of your church and your mom is the administrator of the Christian school that you go to and your whole life is this incredibly narrow bubble, you can't just come out and say, I'm gay and agnostic. Like you you will literally die. Um, Your entire support system is wrapped up in this. So I learned instead to play the game. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. As I went into high school, grade nine was a real formative year for me. Uh, it was the year I got my first boyfriend and we started messing around and it was all completely on the down low. Um, but that was also the year I was selected to be the youngest person to ever preach a sermon from the stage of my church. Uh, I told God to F off and get out of my life. I want nothing to do with you. And I won the spiritual leadership award at my Christian school.
0: Uh, you know, that what's that well it sounds about right it, i the people that can live the double life the best sometimes
1: succeed the most yeah and, yeah. and what was i guess shocking to me was how little people could discern between faking it and and doing these things yeah um mm-hmm. but in order to survive i had to split into two people the good Christian Brian who was acceptable to my community and then who I saw as my real self who was who was all these other things and had to be completely hidden but the psychic damage of that kind of split life is Mm -hmm. overwhelming it leads to we know that clinically that it leads to massive depression anxiety all of these things were bubbling up in my life even though I didn't have the language to describe it at the time and I just was falling into despair. Um, I got into a relationship which was a really unhealthy and um, in some ways abusive relationship. Um, And I I was reaching out, Uh, a wise person once said to me, it's only to the degree that we are known that we can be loved. And I was living in a space where nobody knew who I was. Mm. And so every time someone said they loved me, I assumed that they were only loved me because they didn't know who I really was. Mm-hmm. So the pain of that eventually forced me to try and come out because you just can't live in that state healthy in a healthy way. So... I was part of a very unpopular group of friends at my Christian high school, we were known as the Losers Club, Um, but there was one kid in that group who was even more unpopular than I was, and I thought, he will be the safe person I can come out to, and so I came out to him in grade nine uh, in the math classroom during lunch, and you know you're not cool when you're eating your lunch in the math classroom. (laughs) And he got up and he walked out of the room and he never spoke to me again. Wow. And that was the end of our friendship. And Sorry. about a month later, he got together a bunch of other guys at my Christian high school and they dragged me behind the gymnasium and the chapel and they threw me on the ground and they kicked the crap out of me and called me a faggot and a queer. Oh. And... I went home from that with obvious bruises and my mom asking me, what happened to you? And you're trapped in this situation where I can't say I got beat up at school today because if they call those kids into the office and say, why did you beat up Brian? And they say, because Brian told me he's gay. I get expelled from my school. Um, I will be kicked out of my church. I will be, I was very afraid that I would be thrown out of my house. I I have this memory as a child of, you know, my dad seeing someone on TV and they had their ear pierced and it was pierced on the wrong side. And my dad said, if one of you boys came home with that you'd be out of this house. Mm. And in retrospect, I can say dad probably wouldn't actually react that way. But as a child, I believed him when he said that. So all I knew in grade nine is if anyone knows about this, I will lose everything in my life. And so I went deeply back into the closet again. I told my friend that I was just kidding. Ha, ha, ha. I can't believe you did it. I semi-stalked a poor girl through high school just to prove to people that I was really straight and interested in girls. (laughs) And and just deeply enclosed my life in the closet. And that led to such a deep level of despair that by grade 10, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And so one day while my parents were off at church meetings and my brothers were playing sports like the good straight sons they were, Um, I went home and I filled up the sink with hot water and I got out the sharpest knife I could find and I got ready to slit my wrists because and I I couldn't I I fully believed at that point that if I died I was going to hell but I, I actually couldn't imagine that hell was worse than what I was living in at that point because the psychic pain was so great and I was hoping that maybe I was wrong and it would just be oblivion and and that hope was greater than anything else I had in my life. Hmm. Um, and to be in that place in grade 10, <laughs> um, and as I was getting to, to slip my wrists, the phone rang. And when you hate your life and wanna die, who cares who's on the phone? It's probably Sears trying to sell you siding or something like that. Um, so, but it's almost a Pavlovian reaction. You have to answer the phone. And because you're a good Christian family, you have to be perky when you answer the phone. Because <laughs> Christians are always happy. So there I am, ready to kill myself, grabbing the phone, picking up, hi, Pingeli residents, can I help you? <laughs> and there's no one on the phone. Hello? And I go hang it up. And I come back again and I'm getting ready, and just as I'm starting to cut, the phone rings again, (laughs) and I go and I answer the phone, and there's no one on the phone again. But something about that pulls me back from the moment, and I just collapse on the floor into this puddle of tears and snot. Just, I I don't know how to describe what it felt like to people who haven't been there, um, of, of crying so hard that no sound comes out and you're just rocking back and forth with your mouth open and no nothing is coming out because you're just in so much pain you can't even speak or breathe. And as I lay in that place on the floor, all I know how to say to people is that God showed up. Now, I always had an idea from growing up in the church of what it would be like to have God show up in my life. I thought there would be like a beam of light would come through the window and a voice that sounds strangely like James Earl Jones would be like, Brian, this is God speaking, or like a hand will write something in Hebrew on the wall. Um, and, And none of those things happened. I was just aware of a presence and I knew that presence was God, and it pissed me off, and I was like, what, now you're, I've been like praying to you since I was like four years old, and now you decide to show up, like, what the hell, God, (laughs) and, and God just said, trust me, and I was like, if you, God, trust you. I trusted you when I was four years old. Where were you when I was praying to you every night? Where were you when all of this incredibly painful stuff has been happening in my life? I, like, I have trusted you, and that trust has led to nothing but pain in my life. And God didn't answer any of those things. He, It was just that sense that he was saying, trust me. I was like, okay, God. And this was my prayer of faith in grade 10. Um, it was not a mustard seed of faith, it was a molecule of faith. <laughs> I was like, okay, whatever, God, I'll give you one more chance. I can always kill myself later. <laughs> I felt like Wesley and the Princess Bride, like, okay, good job. I'll most likely kill you tomorrow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> except I was saying it about myself to God. Um, and so I got up and I was like, okay, I- I've had this experience that I don't know how to process. Um, so God must be real, but, but I'm still gay, and I'm still in pain, and I don't know what's going on, so I'm going to try and follow him and make this real. And so I made a couple changes. I, I, the, the relationship I'd been in with a guy had ended very unhealthily, and I decided I wasn't going to get into another relationship until I could get this figured out. I was going to read my Bible, I was going to pray, I was going to step into my Christian life, but I wasn't going to fake things anymore. If I was going to follow Jesus, it had to be real. Now, here's the ironic thing. This was me taking the first steps of genuine faith and realness in my life. Everyone else in my life thought I was backsliding because part of becoming real with God meant I wasn't going to fake and pretend it anymore. And it was the healthiest thing that ever happened in my spiritual life out of a genuine experience of God. And everyone around me started panicking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the fact that they couldn't see that something real was happening now was deeply shocking to and, and, and concerning to me. But so I just started, okay, God, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna follow you. I trust you with my sexuality. You have to make me straight. <laughs> um, I started following him. I got involved even more in church and it was happening more out of this genuine sense of loving people. Eventually started working in youth ministry, you know, did Christian uh, child evangelism fellowship, did backyard clubs for little kids,
0: I did that. <laughs> became a camp
1: counselor, started you know at 16 went to my senior pastor and complained we didn't have a youth group at our church and he was like good i'll teach you to become a youth leader and i became the junior high youth leader at my church fell in love with it you know decided i was going to go off and and go to bible college but all through it there's this dread of like i can't do this like if people really know about me Like, people like me don't become pastors. People like me get burned at the stake by pastors. So if I'm going to go do ministry, you have to make this go away. And and this was like the deal I kept making with God is one foot in front of the next, I'll follow you, but you have to make this go away. But the more I prayed and the more I said, it didn't go away. And so I found myself a freshman at Moody Bible Institute in this place of absolute crisis, because I was serving and I was following and I was doing all the things I wasn't and it wasn't going away. And how I dealt with my attractions to guys up until this point, because what you're taught in evangelical purity culture is if something causes you to stumble, then cut it out of your life. And so I would separate myself from guys. I would, if someone was attractive, I would like cut them out of my life as much as I could. And now I'm living on a dorm with 50 other young, you know, good looking (laughs) men in a, I don't know what it is about Bible college dorms, but they are very weird places. Um, (laughs) People would like run around naked all of the time as forms of male bonding. And that was just considered like a, you know, I'm like, am I the only one who finds this homoerotic? But these were like, just everyday things. Like I'd walk out of my, remember walking out of my dorm room and they were playing naked roller hockey in the hall. And I was like, why? Why is this happening to me, God? I'm trying to follow you. The showers were a big room with like spigots in the wall and no dividers. And everyone just thought that was a normal thing. And let's go take group showers. And I'm like, I'm not okay with this. and it, it sent me into this despair crisis point again of like, I'm trying to follow you and I can't, um, I, I would go through these wild cycles of, okay, this time I'm really going to follow you and I'm, I'm not gonna lust after guys anymore because looking at guys is bad and, and I love Jesus. And, and, and then I would see a cute guy walking around, and I'd be like, he's really cute. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just thought that. If God knew what you were thinking right now, he would want to vomit. God does know what I'm thinking right now. He does want to vomit when he sees it. you know. And it would send me into these despair cycles that for the first time since grade 10, I was very close to being suicidal like, again. And I used to have these fantasies walking around campus that maybe I would, if I was crossing the street, a bus would hit me and I would die and I could die loyal to Jesus and no one would ever know what I truly was. And they would all come to my funeral and and speak about, you know, what a good Christian I was and no one would have to know the truth. And and when you're having you know or thinking maybe I should be a missionary somewhere where I'm going to get killed because then I can die a martyr and that will be glorious and and that that seemed like the only a better out than than living life this way anymore and so when you're having suicide fantasies like something is deeply wrong here um, but one day as I was you know, in this despair, there was a a revival on campus, and it was controversial because it was charismatic, and at Moody, we didn't do the charismatic things. Speaking in tongues was, you actually had to sign a contract saying you wouldn't speak in tongues at campus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, There was this revival that happened, and people were coming forward and doing public confession of sin, and like classes shut down, and we just did praise and worship for like hours at a time. And it was really cool. And I was sitting there, someone came forward and said, um, very popular guy on students council gets up in front of the whole school and says that he's struggling with homosexuality and is trying to follow Jesus and doesn't know what to do. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I am like, till this time, I had never met another person who was both Christian and gay. And any gay person I knew who were like, they were horrible people having sex all of the time, I was told, and they're probably going to die of AIDS as a judgment from Jesus. Mm -hmm. So to meet another Christian who was like in the same boat as me, it was, I was overwhelmed. As soon as he finished speaking, I jumped out of my seat and ran down to talk to him. And then I looked back and there were nine other guys running down the aisle at the same time. Because guess what? Bible college has lots of other closeted gay people in it too. (laughs) So we, we ran down there, and there was a teacher from another Christian school who happened to be visiting that day. And he found us all and gathered us together and said, Brian and, and all the rest of you, I believe God wanted you here today. Um, I'm a counselor and I specialize in helping people who used to be gay not be gay anymore. And you know, you are here for such a time as this, and we're gonna you know, come join this Bible study, we're going to start and we'll deliver you from this thing that's in your life. And so I, that started me on this ex-gay journey. (laughs) Um, And it's really weird to talk about this group. Um, Groups like this are, are often called conversion therapy. And they're very much in the news right now. The weird thing about it is that group probably saved my life. Hmm. It saved my life because I was so suicidal at the time and was so brainwashed not to receive any outside help and living so in the closet um, that I was very close to suicide and giving me a space where I could meet other people who were like me and talk openly about my problems pulled me back from the brink in the short term. So having a group of guys every week where I could go, it's summertime and everyone's walking around without shirts on and man, it's hard to keep my eyes focused on (laughs) not checking out cute guys. And other people being like, oh, I feel you. I struggle with that too. Instead of being like, that's disgusting. I can't believe you would say something like that. Like I needed that community so desperately. Now the problem was there were so many other things that were tied up in that community. So one of them was the belief that if you did work the system, you would become straight. So what the system taught you was that the reason you were gay was that you probably had uh, um, had been molested or had some kind of sexual abuse in your background. And I had been molested by two older boys when I was eight years old at school, Um, you had a bad relationship with your father where you didn't bond with him. And my dad was very British of the generation where men don't show emotions. And I was the drama child who cried all of the time and we had a hard time connecting with each other. And you didn't bond with your peers. And I had like next to no male friends growing up and always hung around girls. So I was like three for three on this. And so, I was like, finally, this is why I'm gay. There's an answer. So, the program said that if you worked on those things, and there was a charismatic element too, it's like all of those experiences opened you to demons, and then you had to go back and over those experiences and renounce the demons and their control of your life and have them cast out of you. And that will help. And then, when all of these things happen, you become straight and you go on and have a happy life with a wife and children and everything. Being part of this group in some ways helped me. I confronted the fact that I had been abused and learned that it wasn't my fault and moved on through some of that. I learned to restore my relationship with my dad and and not resent him for not being the same, you know, I learned about love languages and understood that my dad and I had opposite love languages and that didn't mean we didn't love each other. I learned to bond with men in non-sexualized environments which was an incredibly healthy thing for me. And I did all of that and I was still gay. (laughs) And I got to my senior year of university and went, I'm working the program, I did all of these things and guys are still really hot what am I doing wrong? And then I started looking around at other guys that were in the program with me. And and I had a friend who, you know, he hadn't been abused growing up. And his, his dad was his best friend. And he was homecoming king in high school. And I'm like, so why is he gay? And our group leader said, well, If he's gay, it's because he must have been abused as a child and has repressed his belief about this. And so we have to help him recover his repressed memories of abuse in order for him to become straight. And I, I was just a Bible college student who'd taken a handful of counseling classes but even I knew enough to knew that was really unethical. And and there were studies that showed that if you tell people that they must have been abused, um, and that's the only explanation for their behavior, they will actually spontaneously generate memories of abuse that didn't happen. So you never actually do that in counseling with abused people. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, this counseling thing I'm in, maybe this isn't super healthy and legitimate, but it's the thing that kept me alive through college. What what do I do with that? Mm -hmm. And so I went to my mentor, who was actually the the head of counseling services at the school at the time and and said like, what do I do? Um, I'm working this program, I've done all the things they told me, why aren't I straight yet? And he told me, Who told you that was going to happen? And I was like, No, this is the way it works. I follow the rules. I do the things. I go through therapy. And then God gives me a wife and 2.5 children in a house with a white picket fence. And I, you know, become, go into ministry and live happily ever after. And he confronted me and said, Brian, if none of those things happen, if you're gay the rest of your life, if you never get married or have kids, will you still follow Jesus? And I was, I didn't know how to answer that question. I, I, I went home and I said, I need to pray about this and think about it and spent a month journaling and praying and came back and went, no, 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 no. <laughs> God, God has to make me straight. This is the way it works. And he said, Brian, God doesn't make deals like that. You follow him or you don't. I went back and I thought about it and processed and prayed about it and came back and was like, Fine. follow Jesus, I'll probably be gay and celibate and miserable for the rest of my life. Better get a big freaking crown in heaven out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yet through that, God had patience with me. (laughs) And I found a a stasis level in my life that said, okay, I can accept that this is who I am, I'm gay. And that might mean I'm not in a relationship, and I it might never change, and I follow Jesus, and how is this all going to work out, and whatever. Um. So I, I I came to this process of peace with the fact that I was gay, and that probably wasn't going to change. I looked around this therapy group I was in; no one had changed. <laughs> um, Some of them said they were, but I also knew what they were really doing on their computers at night and and they hadn't changed. Some of them got married and I knew they were still, I saw them checking out guys still. Some of them were checking me out. So I knew this, you know. Um, And this became a crisis point in ministry for me because I, I was training to be a youth pastor and I really loved ministry and I felt called to it, but no one wants to hire a gay youth pastor. (laughs) Um, that's, that's pretty well a way to never get hired ever in the evangelical church. So I, uh, I graduated and I went off and I was part of an online forum that was continuing to do support for me. Um, I started working in churches and I was just going back in the closet because I thought that was the only way I could have a job and God was not content to leave me in the closet. So on my first youth pastor job, I was working at a camp and the last night of camp, my first week on this or second week on the job, I think, um, I'm sitting in the back row of holiness camp and they're having open testimony time where people come forward and share what God has done in their life. And I'm not a person who says like God speaks to me on a regular basis. Like growing up in the AGC, you're you're suspicious of people who hear audible, but but I, I will say maybe three times in my life I have got heard God speak to me super clearly, and this was one of them. And He was like, "Go share your story." And I was like, "If I do that, I'll get fired." And God was like, "Yes, go share your story." <laughs> I was like. <laughs> No, and I got up and I walked out of the tent. And the next thing I remember, I was standing on stage with a microphone in my hand and I had no memory of the time in between. Um, and I started sharing my story about following Jesus and the fact that I was gay. And when I finished speaking it, there were like crying children everywhere running forward wanting to give, they're saying, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's going on in my, and they were like, if you could be that honest about what you're going through, then I can be honest about what I'm going through. And God did like this crazy stuff. And by the time I finished speaking, people were on cell phones calling my church saying, do you know what you just hired in your new youth pastor? I got Sent to our denomination's other camp the next week and Wednesday I got pulled into the director's office and they said Brian we love you you've been doing wonderful ministry but we have to fire you because all of the parents heard that you're gay and they don't want you in cabins with their kids and you know we know you've done nothing wrong and you've been really honest and we have no suspicions about your behavior but you know, it's going to hurt the reputation of the camp to have you work here. So I'm sorry, we're, we're going to send you home. The, the pastor who was the doing the chapel at the camp, was a relatively new and unknown pastor at the time by the name of Bruxy Cavey, who I know was a guest on your show regularly. And this was back when the meeting house was still called like Upper Oaks Brethren in Christ and had maybe 300 people in it in a church gymnasium. Um, And he was the speaker that week. And he said, uh, oh, this is a problem. Um, If Brian goes home, I go home too because we're dealing with the same thing. And they're like, what, you're gay? And he's like, no, but um, Brian is gay and Christian and is trying to follow Jesus and is not having sex because he loves Jesus. And I am straight and divorced and I'm not having sex because I'm following Jesus. And so we're both not getting any because we're following Jesus. So if you send him home, I'm going home too. Wow. they couldn't send me home because he's brexy freaking caving he was the chapel suite so he basically threw himself on a grenade for me and said i will take the blow back from this
0: that's Um,
1: amazing for you it 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 was life-changing to me it was it was to me a very real picture of what christian community could look like and should look like yeah um one more story in this. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going long, but no, it's, and it, it's jumping backwards. But my senior year when I was at Moody, my, my dad had a heart attack. And I thought he was going to die. Um, and I went and visited him. Um, and part of me really wanted to tell him who I was because of my I was afraid he was going to die never knowing. I told my mom in grade 12, which was a really traumatic experience and she cried a lot and read every book on homosexuality and tried to figure out how to cure me and and i made her promise when i told her that she wouldn't tell my dad because i was afraid my dad was going to throw me out um but I, I, i couldn't let my i was afraid that my dad would die not knowing who i was and i needed to know whether my dad would love me if he knew who i really was and the thought of him dying without knowing that was terrifying. So I went home and tried to tell him and couldn't tell him. Um, the, I, I remember sitting in the living room staring at him for an hour trying to get up the courage and I just couldn't do it. So on the train ride home I wrote him a seven-page letter telling him everything.
0: Yeah.
1: and. Uh, I, I got back to the school and I put it in the mail and then started hyperventilating and having a panic attack. I don't know, because I had to wait, you know, two to six weeks for it to go through the mail and get a response. And I don't know how to explain to people what it feels like to spend two to six weeks of waiting to find out whether you have a family anymore. Um, because what I fully expected was he would get the letter and I would, and then I said, you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm going through. And I know you're not good about talking about this kind of stuff. And if that's true, it's okay. I'm just going to stop coming home for the holidays because it, it hurts too much to have to come home and, and, and pretend. Um while i was waiting to find out whether i had a family or not anymore i had a mental breakdown one day <laughs> we were in prayer meeting and you know how in prayer meetings you go around and when you have the really if you're praying for like aunt petunia's bunion you can say it out loud but when you have the really bad stuff you know no one says those things out loud you always do the unspoken requests yeah sure. <laughs> I kind of had that, like, I was in such a state of distress that I forgot to do the unspoken request and just blurted out to my dorm floor that I had just told my dad I was gay and didn't know whether I'm allowed to go home anymore or not. And I don't know what to do. And then I realized I had said that out loud to a room room of 50 guys who ran around our dorm floor naked all of the time. (laughs) I went like, oh crap, I am literally going to die now. And there was this long silence in the room. And I actually curled up into the fetal position on the floor because I was expecting them to kick the crap out of me. And they gathered in this big circle around me. Um, And instead of kicking me, one of them picked me up and threw me into a giant bear hug, and all of the other guys piled in around them and they hugged me. Mm -hmm. And they said, Brian, we love you and you are one of us. And if your parents kick you out, then we will be your family. And if you can't go home for the holidays, then you'll come home with us because you are one of us and you are our family and we love you and we need you and you are part of this community. And I was really confused. <laughs> I said, you don't understand, guys. I I, I mean, I, I'm attracted to guys, like, a lot, like, sexually. And one of them said, yeah, and I'm attracted to girls a lot sexually and I'm trying not to sleep with my girlfriend and I suck at it and he's attracted to girls a lot sexually and he's trying not to look at porn all of the time and he sucks at it and and we're not even sure what he's attracted to but he masturbates a disturbing lot so and and we're all need Jesus and you're one of us and you belong here and 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 I was just made welcome on the dorm floor And they said, Brian, we have lots of guys that we can play football with, but when we wanna talk about our feelings to someone who can actually communicate in words, um, you're the guy we come and talk to, <laughs> and and when our girlfriends are mad at us and we don't know why, <laughs> we come and talk to you and you translate for us, <laughs> and, and you are like the beating heart of this dorm floor, and we love you, and you you belong here, and for the first time, I had a picture of myself as being part of the body of Christ. I'd always thought before, if I was part of the body of Christ, I was probably the appendix. No one knows what it really does, and someday it might blow up and kill you. Um, (laughs) Or or maybe I was just the colon. I just got to process all of the crap of the body of Christ. (laughs) Um, But they were like, Brian, you are the heart, and we need you, and you belong to our community. And that unconditional love and acceptance transformed me. Hmm. Um, My dad called me back a couple days after that. And he said, Brian, you know, I'm not good about talking about my emotions. And I can't say things really good. There's a lot of stuff in your letter I just don't know about. But what I do know is I love you and God loves you, and you will always be part of this family, and you will always come home. Wow. And my dad started crying. I had never seen my dad cry in my life, not even at my grandparents' funeral. But I saw my, my dad cried for me that, and that was the start of healing between my dad and I. And And to me, that's been the model of, I, I've worked with thousands of Christian parents since that time. Um, and I said, you don't need to have all of the answers, <laughs> but if you say, I don't know, but I love you, and we're in this together, and you always have a safe place here, everything else can work from there, but that's got to be our starting point on things. Um, so I've been in ministry, I've been out in ministry, it's been really hard over the years, and um, there were times when I couldn't find jobs because people assume that if you're gay and you want to work with teenagers, you're probably a pedophile. Um, I, you know, I, I found that churches, when they got to know me, then they weren't concerned. But if the first thing they knew about me was gay, they would never get me the chance to know anything else about me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I often found myself in this cycle of hiding and lying about it until I could build up enough trust and come out to the, the church. Um, then I, I, I went back to Bible college. I got my master's degree in counseling Um, and immediately was sought out by a ministry called New Direction Ministries at the time and said, we want you to come be a counselor. And we've got all of these youth who are gay and they're asking questions and they need someone who's been through that, who knows and understands youth culture and work with them. So I became the national youth worker for, for this ministry. I traveled all over North America sharing my story. I was named one of the 35 Christian leaders under 35 by Christian Week Magazine and Arrow Ministries. Um, I I did like 200 speaking in, sorry, I did 80 speaking engagements in one year, about 200 over the time that I worked for them all across North America. Um, And I suddenly became very popular. And some of that was I got to speak in a way that told youth pastors it was okay for them to not throw the gay kids, they, inside they knew that throwing the gay kids out was the wrong thing, but every time they, everything they had been told, told them they had to do that, and it was like I was giving them permission that there was another answer to this, Mm -hmm. but also in some ways it gave them hope, because as I continued to do youth ministry, I realized that my career options were severely limited if I didn't get married, um, but I also realized I wasn't straight, <laughs> and that wasn't going to change. Um, and so I was part of this online forum for Christians who were gay and struggling with their sexuality, and I was part of this online group uh, and, that were holding each other accountable and supporting each other, and we would go to these conferences, these Exodus conferences, and meet up in person. And there was this one guy in my support group who was really cool and I I, we, I really gelled with, and I was looking forward to meeting him for the first time. And when we got to the conference, my friend Paul was like, oh, have you met Anna yet? And I'm like, who's that? And he's like, you know, Xavier. And in walks this purple haired, angry lesbian chick <laughs> wearing plaid. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, that's... The screen name was Xavier, and I just assumed it was a guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I was like, why didn't you tell me you were a girl? Because like, because when you say that you're a girl online, other guys treat you either they try and like someone si- say, I want to cyber with you, or they ignore you and treat you like crap. So I just use gender neutral terms. And, <laughs> you know, Anyways, we became best friends um, at the conference. There were all of these people like dealing with their gayness for the first time and they were all touchy-feely and wanted to hug everyone. And Anna has like personal space issues. So I became her bodyguard when people would try and hug her. I would step in and take the hugs for her. <laughs> and, and over the next couple of years, we just became best friends and Somewhere along there, I was like, well, I'm not going to change. You're not going to change. We're both following Jesus and being alone is really miserable. Want to get married? (laughs) She said, yes. (laughs) What made us different from most of the other people who got married in this group was we never imagined that we were going to change our orientation by being married. The ones who thought they were going to change their orientation um, all ended up pretty much getting divorced um, and in really ugly circumstances. Out of the hundreds of people I've known in the group, I know three who are successfully in marriages to people of the opposite sex um, and good on them. (laughs) Um, The other 97%, it turned out really, really ugly. Um, But Anna and I got married. We got married because we realized we needed support. Like for me, living on my own was a really unhealthy psychological place. And we got married, not because we thought our orientation changed, because we were best friends who trusted each other and needed that support to back each other up through everything, knowing who each other were. And so we got married almost 15 years ago now and we've been married ever since and we're still together.
0: Hmm.
1: And because I got married, then people in the church suddenly thought I was safe. So I got all of these speaking engagements of churches going, oh, see, he was gay, but he just found the right girl to get married to. So all you have to do is find a nice lesbian and settle down and you'll, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And we were like, no (laughs) stop saying that to people that's not true our relationship like our relationship works for us because it was founded on honesty and trust Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um and it's really really weird and we it it makes no sense one of the important things is just because something works in your story doesn't mean it's going to work in everybody's story. And what kept happening is other Christians who would go through and have an experience like this would then build careers around going telling other people that because, you know, that it would work for them too. Mm -hmm. And some of them, it wasn't working for them. That was just the being married was the price of acceptance in the Christian community. And saying that they had changed was the only way that they could get acceptance. Some people, they had navigated a, a, a genuinely healthful relationship, and it does happen, you know. Marriages are complex things and they work differently for different people. You know, there are a lot of um, arranged marriages that are, are really horrific and abusive, but they are arranged marriages that end up happy. You know, I, I know marriages from cults that, that destroyed people and other people who found happiness by some chance in them. Anna and I found a relationship that worked, but we found a relationship that worked by being open and honest with each other about who we are and what we were and not lying to each other. Um, The problem was I found the church wanted the lie more than it wanted the messy truth. Yeah. And so as I went and spoke all of these places, I became the expert on this. And what people wanted was a solution. They wanted how to make, how do we make our gay kids straight? And I'm like, I don't have that solution. <laughs> Here's my messy story. They're like, no, no, no. We want you to tell us how to make our, our kids straight. And I was doing one-on-one counseling with gay kids whose families would bring them in and say, we will pay you any money. You just, you have to make these kids straight. And I'm like, we don't do that. We, we can't do that. That's not healthy to do that. And they were like, then what? No, no this is how it works. I worked with many of those youth to come to grasp for themselves and help them process through and some of them really were gay and ended up in gay relationships. Some of them, it turned out they were bi and ended up with girls and some of them were bi and ended up with guys and some of them actually figured out that they were in identity confusion right now and ended up in, you know, saying no. I'm working through this, but I'm actually, the thing was I had to give them space where any of those options were okay and let them know that God would love them wherever they, whichever they landed in. When you say this has to be the predetermined answer whether you fit into it or not, that is where things went super bad and we would see kids falling into self-harm, into despair. all sorts of negative outcomes. The problem was, when I started saying, this is the way to health, churches said, that isn't the acceptable answer. We can't allow them to have these alternatives. The only answer is, you are straight and will get married to a woman, the end. Some of them would say, or you can be celibate for the rest of your life, the end. But what we found was these kids, when they don't have options of where they can go to, if they can't build a mental map of, this is how I can get to being accepted and having a healthy life, they fall into despair. And this is where we see self-harm, suicide, drinking, all sorts of negative outcomes happening, so. Um, As I started to speak up and say, hey, this is what we're seeing, that what we're doing is literally killing our kids in the church. We have to give them more options than just that. Suddenly, I wasn't allowed to speak anymore. Suddenly, churches wouldn't invite me back. Suddenly, youth conferences went from booking me as their frontline speaker to not letting me in the building anymore. The ministry got its funding cut. I had to be laid off. And I went through 24 interviews where I made it to the third stage, second or third stage of interview. And then it got to the point where they said, you're really talented. You're really qualified. (laughs) Your resume is amazing. We love the ministry we're doing with gay people. We don't feel you're called to our church. You should, should go work with them over there. And I realized by advocating for gay students, there was no longer space for me in the church. Now, the story ends well. I was incredibly blessed. I went back. I retrained as a child and youth worker, worked in the youth detention for five years. And when I graduated, was immediately hired by a United Church, uh, North Bramley United Church in Brampton, my opinion of United churches were that they generally were very liberal and didn't believe in Jesus, but I found this church and and they were full of old people and dying, um, and I found this church that was like growing from four to five hundred people and loved Jesus and had modern praise and worship and did evangelism and bleached you and made space for LGBT people. And I went into the interview, and I said, okay, first thing, I'm just telling you this, if a gay kid comes out as gay in my youth group, I'm going to tell them that God loves them, and he'll walk through this with him, no matter what they decide. And they're like, good, we won't hire you if you don't make that commitment, because we've got a lot of gay kids in our church, and we're not going to hire anyone who's going to harm them. And so I've spent five wonderful, almost six wonderful years now ministering there, building an inclusive youth group full of, I mean, we've got LGBTQAA plus, you know, we could go through, I call it the the fellowship of the endless acronym. We've got a lot of kids who don't know what the heck they are now and that's okay. What they know is that God loves them, they're in a safe place, and that whatever they figure out, they're going to still belong to that space. And being able to minister for Jesus in that space is, I call it my unicorn church. (laughs) I didn't think it existed, but I found this one, and, and I love it. So That's incredible. Yeah. That's this good. is my story. Sorry, that probably went way longer than.
0: Yeah. I, that was great. To... This is very hopeful, hopeful yeah. to hear. Yeah. We're looking for a unicorn as well. You see yeah. it passing up our way. Right daughter. Leo.
1: Well, the thing is unicorn <laughs> churches become unicorn churches because people believe that they can exist and choose to build them. Yeah. Um and it's hard because like there's so many points along the way that, that you know, you can make a choice and, and, and then it doesn't become a, and we're still, I mean, my church still has a long way to go. My church falls into the category of well-meaning but relatively clueless when it comes along to LGBT things. And there are LGBT people in our community that are still saying, you need to, like, I am glad that you will marry us But there is more to being inclusive than just that. So, you know, and other people saying, like, it's great that I can get married to, you know, as a woman, I can get married to a woman here, but I'm black. And if you don't make space for believing that minorities have deep value that, you know, or you know, or I'm deaf and if you won't provide translation for me, you're still not an inclusive space. Like we're still always learning new things we have to do to Mm -hmm. become inclusive to more groups of people than just this one thing. So Mm -hmm. even unicorns can stab you. So we're still (laughs) working. I don't want to paint a picture of we found the perfect church. Right. But what i am working with with the leadership is how do we continue on this journey of of better embodying christ's love to more people
0: mm-hmm.
1: <sighs> yeah so that's me yeah. and my story
0: <laughs> thank you for that and we had discussed doing a second part so um, yeah. maybe we can both take a break and then i have a bunch of kind of absolutely questions to hit you with just because Uh, I'd love to wrap my brain around this in in different questions that I have. I want to respond, though, to what you said. And the thing that I heard coming out was seeking authenticity and this constant Mm. pull between the image and the authenticity and this strange sense of seeking the truth is where Jesus is but it feels as though you're walking the wrong direction because all the church people are saying, no, this is the way walk ye in it. And you're like, no, that anyways, I just, yeah. I resonate with that. And um, I want to just highlight that. I heard a lot of courage. I heard a mm. lot of sacrifice and making the right decision, even when it was incredibly costly to you. Um, I just want to empathize with like it's it's hard to communicate over zoom but i just felt the pain that that young child that young boy experienced and it wasn't right um and it does make me sad that um the theology that i have taught causes this kind of pain um that's that's a sadness that i'm trying to deal with as best i can by changing the theology and then making it accessible um the other thing that i want to highlight from that is responses and we've heard two types of responses um to you coming out and to you being authentic to yourself one is you mentioned disgust um anger and aggression uh and cutting people off um and then we've heard a lot of people uh standing up for you and accepting you no matter what and committing to you no matter what and uh that just chokes both of us up we're kind of uh, a mess over here because um we have our own stories and that hasn't necessarily happened Mm -hmm. um there can be all sorts of reasons that people cut people out because of religion um or they hide behind religion when the truth is really that um there's just good old-fashioned sin in the Mm -hmm. (laughs) self where people are just assholes um if get it their way then <laughs> religion becomes the convenient excuse uh so anyways i just wanted to highlight that um that there's a right and a wrong way to respond to people's authentic truth whether or not you understand it or not and um yeah so i I'm, also
1: want to just you know, respond to this and say um that sometimes the people who initially responded with grace in the long run turned out very inflexible. And sometimes people respond poorly right away and then take time and process and feel bad and come back and, and turn around. And, and Jesus actually tells a parable about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I want to say grace, like... There are a lot of things that when I was first made aware of in my life, I did not respond well to. And even on this topic, I have not responded well to other people particularly gracefully. And I have taught a lot of wrong things. I think a culture of humility and forgiveness and gentleness is really at the core of responding to this. And oftentimes we label people of, oh, you didn't respond the way I think you should, you are a bigot, or you, are the, you didn't respond the way I think you should, you are a liberal. And those are generally not helpful labels. Um, uh, what I see is we're all in a mess together and we're responding to it together mm-hmm. and to give each other gentleness uh, as we go through answering those you know, I talked to my mom about how she responded when I came out the first time. And she says, Brian, you had like years to process the fact that you were gay. I had 30 seconds. Sorry if the answer that came out of my mouth was not the ideal one right away. And I tell that to a lot of parents. And I tell that to a lot of LGBT people that I'm working with when someone has come out, you know, family members have not come out. Or responded to them coming out the way they wanted to. I said, you know, you need to take steps to protect yourself, but also give grace in this because people don't always get it right. And so if we fall back into camps of we are the ones who have the right answer and the people over there are evil, you can do that just as much as a liberal as you can as a fundamentalist. (laughs) They become sides of the same coin. What I'm really interested in is. How do we find things that are good and respectable and lovable in both things? My childhood had huge trauma in it and also had really rich, wonderful things in it that I see some of my youth today and saying, I wish you could have had the kind of structure and love and community that I had growing. It was the fact that the community was so good that made being rejected from it so painful. Mm-hmm. So I'm not here to destroy the church or attack the church. I'm saying, how do we as the church better humbly live into the fullness of what God has for us?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hear that and appreciate that. Um, I am going to cut it here and then yep. we'll jump right back into part two as soon as. Okay, uh, good. Let's take, take, a take a break. I
1: just drank a big tea before I went on. So my bladder is now.
0: All right. <laughs> See you soon. And this has been the Seeking Health podcast. Stay tuned for episode two, probably coming out tomorrow. Bye.